today on Ag News Daily. It means southern harvest in Spanish. Literally, it, it would be the, the harvest of the south. And I, I really came up with it because the, the inspiration behind the company was actually Latin American uh, coffee producer. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, sponsored today by Douglas Plant Health. To unharness your soil's fertility and maximize yield, consider Douglas Plant Health. Tanner, I got it right today. Yeah. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. The sun is shining today. I thought we were maybe going to get some rain, but I think we're going to get started planting today. So today is a good day. It is. I, uh... From the Farm for Profit account, put out a post last night asking how far people were uh, planting progress. I would say 50% of the responses on Twitter said zero. And uh, the other 50% was probably split between just got started with corn to corn is done. So a uh, wide wow. geographic area that responded. But still, more than half of the respondents are waiting there, waiting for something to get fit to go. Wow, I can't believe some people are saying that they're already done. Just with corn. Right, but yeah, but still. Hmm. All right, then. Well, let's dig into some news for this morning, Tanner. And I had a quick update here on the meat packing uh, ag committee meeting that's been going on this week in D.C. It's really interesting some of the questions they were asked. And Chairman David Scott from Georgia asked the CEOs of the big four, was there ever an agreement between your four companies to cooperate together on issues impacting supply or pricing? And he said he needed to know if there was an agreement with them to that clearly states they needed to change prices. And they all responded no, Tanner. So I, I don't really have an opinion on that one way or the other, other than just to think if these companies were working together, you wouldn't think that the CEOs would be in on it. Like they might be somewhat aware that these things were going on, but really wouldn't you think they would want to keep their noses out of it so they could stay clean? Yeah. I mean, we've all know that peer groups exist in a lot of industries. You know, there's, there's probably a possibility for anything, but I agree. You would, probably hindsight, you know, would require you to forwardly think about keeping your nose clean. Absolutely. And so go on goes on to say basically that there were a couple of major impacts for why prices have been the way they were. And they said that all of them pretty much testified that they're not making great margins either. But Donnie King, the CEO of Tyson's Foods, said basically that due to labor and supply chain issues, that's why things have been tight, tighter for the producer. He's like, consumers aren't paying more. The demand's not there right now, which I would argue with a little bit. But he said due to lack of demand, supply chain shortages, labor costs, he said, you know, we've had to significantly pay employees more to get them to be willing to come in and work. He said all of those things coupled together is why you're seeing these disparities in what producers are making. And that's interesting because uh, I think a lot of these packers are uh, forced to do quarterly reporting, if I remember correctly. And I thought that there were significant profit margins being built in at the packer. I know there is a, a big difference between the price 
the farmer gets for his beef versus what you see on the grocery store shelves. I'm not denying the fact that there are a lot of things that go into processing that meat, uh, but I still find that very difficult to believe. But then again, Delaney, if you were sitting up there potentially being implicated on a price fixing claim, are you going to come right out and say, yep, we did it. You caught us. We're sorry. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, very, very interesting. But uh, staying on the livestock side of things, have you ever heard of something being as rare as hen's teeth, Delaney? No, but I'm intrigued. So that's actually really rare because uh, hens don't have teeth. Oh. And that was the really cheesy opening line to an article here talking about the planter shortage. So if you are getting ready to plant your crop and are waiting for your planter to show up, good luck is pretty much what uh, this article here on Successful Farming states that compared to last year, there are less than 900 total planters for sale on the market compared to 1,450 uh, at this time last year. So just quite an interesting factor that, you know, we know iron supplies are tight, but where does it get even more rare than hen's teeth? Because that's a 40% drop in inventory on the planter side, but that is in tillage tools. So it sounds like if you are not set Delaney for spring, equipment wise, uh, you are going to pay a premium price. You're going to have to search far from home for your replacement piece. And, uh, you may not have ability to garner extra parts because sometimes doing any of these older machines can have parts taken off in the middle of the season to get you by. But even with inventory low part selections, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. So just kind of a warning to our listeners here as planting season really kicks off. Uh, you might have to lower your expectations or work with what you've got. Well, even the plants or the parts, component of that, I think, is the more alarming piece. Right. Correct. And uh, we had an interview with Southford Tillage on our podcast talking about that same issue, you know, things to watch for the spring. And then how are we going to do for parts? And it sounds like a lot of companies are trying to hoard. They had ordered ahead. The problem that they had when trying to stock parts is they're just not being made. So even though the companies that create these tillage and planters are trying their best to stock parts, just can't get them themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Well, speaking of stockpiling, you know, that's been a conversation we've been having about Indonesian palm oil and have had some mixed news stories about potentially they would, you know, allow now 15% of exports to leave the country's border. But Good friend of the podcast, Tommy Grizafi, sent me an article that really, I think, puts things in perspective. It was written by Karen Braun yesterday morning, and it looks at a lot of different statistics and basically looks at the major global vegetable exports, which are things like Indonesian palm oil, Malaysian palm oil, Ukrainian sunflower oil, um, Argentinian soybean oil, Canadian canola oil. Those are the major ones. And then there's kind of like the others category. But as you look at the story there, you, you know, Tanner, as I mentioned there, we've got Indonesia in the mix. We've got Ukraine in the mix, Argentina in the mix. All of those countries currently in some sort of either weather or obviously war a related issue and have really downscaled exports of these global cooking oils. 
Indonesia's palm oil export ban has also reignited the discussion of using cooking oils to make biodiesel. The Malaysian Palm Oil Board said that countries should cut back on using edible oils for biodiesel. However, the Malaysian Biodiesel Association countered that the country should not cut its biodiesel mandate as it would lead to a crash in crude palm oil prices. And again, as you look at the countries that contribute to major vegetable oil exports, Indonesia and Malaysia are the world's top palm oil producers, accounting for 85%, Tanner, of all world global output. Indonesia palm oil accounts for about 35% of that. Malaysia is the rest. But this article that I was reading, written by Karen Braun, said that essentially shutting off Indonesia's palm oil shipments is akin to a scenario where the United States shuts off all oil seed exports, including soybeans. So that is a massive amount when you think about it in those terms. Yeah, that, I think that's the payoff line of that article to Absolutely. put it into perspective because I was taking it probably too lightly as we've been reporting on it uh, just for lack of knowledge of the environment or what's even used for. But yes, exactly. that, that certainly seems like it could have a bigger impact. You know, you mentioned yesterday on the podcast that Canada is severely cutting canola output to a 14-year low. I think you mentioned it was by like 7% down, and we're going to see a shift towards wheat acres in Canada. But obviously, canola oil is also a large cooking oil. So we're seeing really this being cut on all on all fronts, Tanner. So it may be more expensive really in the next coming months to buy cooking oil at the grocery store. So maybe that's something to go stock up on. I don't know. No, we don't need to start the toilet paper <laughs> shortage of, of 22 being cooking oil. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, certainly certain to pay attention to. For many years, though, U.S. farmers in select markets have trusted their SP1 as a, an integral part of their crops fertility program. Today, as fertilizer prices soar and supply chain challenges loom, DPH Biologics are expanding access to their trusted biofertilizer. They are helping growers circumvent supply challenges while improving crop yield profitability with their TerraTrove SP1 Classic. The complete biofertilizer can replace up to 50% of your starter fertilizer. If you have interest in learning more, visit dphbio.com. But back to more discussion about stocks, Delaney. We had reported last week that ethanol had dropped to a seven-month low for output but it rebounded last week. So ethanol jumped out of that seven-month low because uh, inventories are continuing to decline. So we're back up, ramping up production. They averaged 963,000 barrels a day last week. That was up from the 947. So back into the positive trend for ethanol production. And I think as we get into the markets here in a couple of minutes, it's indicating uh, a lot of different factors putting things into the green in the overnight. But inventories have dropped to 23.96 million barrels. That is down from the 24.3 million barrels last week. So stocks dropped, output went up in the ethanol sector. It's interesting as you look at the energy sector altogether, this headline I think might really steal the show, but it says several European traders have started to pay for Russian gas in rubles, which is, of course, the Russian currency there. And 
interestingly enough, you know, Tanner, when this Russia-Ukraine invasion was starting, a lot of folks were blackballing Russia, saying they wouldn't do business with them. And now it appears that uh, we're starting to see that change a little bit due to the fact that people need access to gasoline and prices continue to go higher at the store. But the European Commission was accused or has accused Moscow of blackmail over its demand to be paid in rubles. But in an advisory note last week, the commission said that buyers of Russian gas could participate in a scheme where they could confirm the payment was complete once they deposited the euros, as opposed to later when the euros were converted to rubles. So it does seem like there's some sort of scheme going on here, at least that folks are accusing Russia of at this point. But uh, as of Wednesday, Russia has cut off gas supplies to now, added to the list, Poland and Bulgaria. So certainly a long list of countries that are either forced to discontinue to do business with Russia or have chosen to discontinue doing business with Russia. Yeah, and that seems like the fine line of, you know, childhood arguments of, oh, I didn't do it. Uh, (laughs) Yes, that's true. We're we're getting to the hearsay side of it. Ultimately, uh, probably no repercussions will be in place, unfortunately, because you can't pin anybody down. The last piece of news I have uh, starts close to home, at least where the company was founded. But Elanco and Royal DSM partnered to reduce cattle methane emissions. So we had reported that we got to hear Bruce Rassetter speak on uh, Tuesday, I believe. And uh, the discussion around pipelines to take the CO2 that is normally released in the air from ethanol plants, put it into a pipeline or liquefy it, put it into a pipeline. Elanco Animal Health and Royal DSM have teamed up to develop Bovair, which is a first-of-its-kind feed additive aimed at reducing the methane emissions from beef and dairy cattle in the U.S. market. So this feed is something you feed to livestock cattle, and it does something different for their digestive system, or how does it reduce methane? You are spot on. So it is demonstrated to reduce methane emissions by 22 to 35% for dairy cattle, and up to 80% for beef cattle based upon their existing diet. They have done this in over 50 studies on over 48 farm trials across 14 different countries. You add a quarter teaspoon of bovar feed per head per day. The feed then suppresses the enzyme in the rumen that triggers methane production. So this product is breaking down in the digestive tract the compounds that are naturally found in the stomach and test results have shown that once you remove bovair from the feed methane production returns back to full levels that were initially observed so indicating that it has no lasting effect on animals or meat production could potentially reduce significant amounts of methane being released into the atmosphere Hmm. interesting well speaking of meat production We could see a U.S. pork supply shortfall this 2022 season. We've seen a 1.9% year-over-year drop in the U.S. swine breeding herd, which is combined with ongoing productivity challenges, which include things like increased commodity prices. As you look at hog prices right now, they're 4% higher than they were versus one year ago and have really tried to help offset rising feed, labor, and energy costs and could see a dampening second half of 2022 industry expansion. So 
they're making more money, but there's a lot more costs this year, Tanner, to produce the same hogs we've been producing year over year. And this is according to Rabo Bank. This is their global pork quarterly report that I'm referencing here. But they said that consumer demand remains firm despite higher prices and retail pork prices are actually down from February's highs and 3% below year ago levels, but still 32% above the five year average. But overall, he said, they said market strength reflects that about a six and a half percent year over year drop in pork production is expected this year as well as strong retail demand, especially given the high prices of competing proteins. Yeah, that I think we, in our Monday market conversation, touched a little bit on that as to the demand for soybeans. Uh, specifically, in our discussion, was related to China and how their herd had expanded but maybe contracting or mm-hmm. just all markets are not in an expansion mode. I think it was the first time in a long time that all three markets had kind of remained in a steady pattern. Uh, so yes, it'll be another interesting item for us to track. But if you're worried about your cost of production, don't forget about Douglas Plant Health. For many years, U.S. farmers in select markets have trusted their SP1 as an integral part of their crop fertility program. Today, as fertilizer prices soar and supply chain challenges loom, DPH Biologics is expanding access to their trusted biofertilizer, helping you, the grower, circumvent supply challenges while improving crop yield and your profitability with TerraTrove SP1 Classic. The complete biofertilizer can replace up to 50% of your starter fertilizer needs. Visit dphbio.com. Well, Delaney, you pull up the markets, but Mm -hmm. it looks like here headlines are catching. Corn bowls are continuing to watch the cool, wet Midwest weather conditions. Some signing an alarm in yield cuts potentially already. So it'll be yes. interesting to see as those are put together. We also headlines are on crops as dry Brazilian safrina crop doesn't hurt the bulls push either on the corn market plus the ethanol headlines that we just heard. So what did they look like coming out of the overnight? Yeah, and I just wanted to add one quick anecdote, I suppose you could say here, because yes, as we've been talking about, they're continuing to watch weather. And it seems like even with the amount of wet weather that folks have gotten in the Dakotas, you know, with rain at fall events, even this late in the year, that wasn't enough really to alleviate drought concerns continuing all the way west. I had reached out to Eric Snodgrass a couple of days ago. I was just curious, you know, we talk about this La Nina pattern, which is supposed to mean hot and dry. And he said, just really short you know, side note, he's been traveling a lot, but he did at least take a quick second to respond to my email. So I appreciate that. But he shared, Tanner, that La Nina Springs are actually often wet in the eastern Corn Belt. And unfortunately, I was been lumped into that eastern Corn Belt this year, it seems. But he said it's this summer pattern that continues to pose the most risk for drought and that La Nina's influence is actually very season dependent. So usually it has a pretty wet spring like this in the eastern corn belt followed by an extremely dry summer growing season so definitely not out of the woods yet but certainly as you mentioned there bulls leading the way this morning on the overnights as they are pushing grains higher across the board 
corn, soybeans, and all wheat complexes higher this morning, anywhere from one to 10 cents in the grain markets. Livestock are having the opposite story this morning as they are trading lower in live cattle, feeder cattle, and lean hogs. Tanner. So it'll be interesting to see how things open up here, shaken out in just a little while. Absolutely. But with that, Tanner, we better kick it over to today's interview. We're talking about coffee production, of all things, today with Charlie Stevens of Cosecha del Sur. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, folks, very excited to talk about this unique opportunity in agriculture that's been created by founder and owner of Cosecha Del Sir, Charlie Stevens. Charlie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. So we got to start with the name because it's you look at it and I wasn't sure how to pronounce it. It's Cosecha Del Sur. What does it mean? How did you come up with it? Yeah, good question. So um, it, it means Southern Harvest in Spanish. Literally, it, it would be the, the harvest of the South. Um, and I, I really came up with it because the, the inspiration behind the company was actually Latin American, uh, coffee producers and really the kind of the culture and the supply chain that goes into, uh, coffee production. And so, uh, I really wanted to kind of design everything from the branding all the way to the way that we, um, you know, import and sell our product to kind of uh highlight uh, that culture and so um we decided to go with with kind of a a, a unique name and uh yeah people struggle with the name but that's okay <laughs> it's memorable uh yeah, certainly exactly. once you explain it everybody will remember it so what is exactly the business that you're in yeah so um we are a specialty coffee producer so what is first off what is specialty coffee specialty coffee is um, sort of different than say commodity coffee. And I'll pick on, uh, I'll pick on two brands, for example, Folgers and Starbucks. Nothing wrong with those, but, uh, they're going to be using more of a homogenized commodity type coffee versus specialty coffee comes in and, uh, everything is picked by hand. Um, you know, bricks levels are, are recorded with every individual, um, piece of fruit that comes in and a lot of people actually don't know that coffee is a fruit. Um, and so, uh, there, there's a lot more attention paid to the quality on specialty coffee and really every lot, uh, tastes differently. There are very different characteristics that come through. So, um, we focus on that and, uh, you know, like I said, the business is really, uh, exists to, to highlight the, the producers that, that create these, these amazing coffees. And I sort of fell in love with it because, you know, coffee is interesting in the sense that it, it's a, it's a plant that the producers can make changes, be it to the soil or the harvesting processes or post-harvest processes, and you get to taste it, you know, and, and that's pretty unique. Um, and, and frankly, it's, it's really enjoyable. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and so anyways, we, we focus on, on that type of coffee from Latin America, um, kind of through, uh, through, through the early stages of the business, um, really wanted to prove the concept. And, and I think we did well with that. And we ended up raising a little bit of capital, 
and and recently uh, made two acquisitions in Latin America. So one is a our own coffee farm in El Salvador. Um, so I guess technically I'm probably the only coffee farmer in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, <laughs> and then uh, we also acquired a uh, a small uh, another small company in Medellin, Colombia. Uh, and there we are in the process of completing a processing mill in Medellin, Colombia. So we're, you know, technically you could say we're vertically integrated. We import all of our own stuff. We, you know, we deal with um, the farmers ourselves. We don't go through uh, middlemen. And, um, and yeah. So you have, you said you're the only coffee farmer there in, in, that area of Texas. Uh, what do you mean by that? Are you actually growing coffee beans in Texas? Well, <laughs> no, no, that's a good question. So coffee is, is grown along the equator. Um, there's actually, it's, it's called the coffee belt. Um, and so around the world, you have Latin America, you have Africa, and you have Asia. Um, and uh, so, no, we're, we're not growing coffee uh, in Texas, but you know, we are, I am actively managing our farm in El Salvador. In fact, uh, yesterday we just applied a new, a new fertilizer um, that we pulled in from Guatemala. And, and so I'm, I'm very hands-on with the farm and, and our production practices. So you said coffee belt. What, for our listeners that are growing other crops that probably don't even know what it takes to grow coffee, what what type of climate or, or conditions does it take to grow coffee? So you're looking at um, very uh, tropical and, and kind of temperate climates. So uh, areas where the, the weather isn't going to change um, all that much throughout the year. So, you know, when you start getting closer to the equator, let's say Colombia, for example, really the, the weather is the same year round. Uh, the light cycles are the same year round. Uh, really, the only differences you have is you have a rainy season and a dry season. And so that that rainy season is really important because that is what determines the, the flowering or the blooming of the coffee trees. And so right after the rainy season, that's when you you, you get your bloom. Um, and I would encourage anyone to, to Google uh, coffee, coffee flower. It's a, it's a really beautiful uh, time of year. On the coffee farm, everything is white and it, it's it's really pretty. Um, but those flowers then turn into uh, the cherry that we then uh, pick and 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 process and and eventually roast uh, to serve. I, I think it's really interesting too. I was looking through one of your blogs, Charlie, and it's called "How I Started a Coffee Company on Accident" because you got your start it sounds like as a commodity trader and you were down in Latin America, like you said, and kind of had this inspiration to grow this business. Are you still actively a commodity trader? Or are you just focused on the coffee business? <laughs> so uh, 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 yes and no. Um, so yeah, I, I started my career uh, after Texas Tech. I started my career um, as a grain merchandiser. So uh, cut my teeth in the in the grain markets, trading corn, soybeans, and and wheat. Um, and through that, I, I kind of fell in love with the idea of of international markets. And you know, something interesting happened. It's actually relevant to today. Uh, when I was trading uh, wheat, 
Um, that was the first time that, that, uh, our friend, uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and, and Crimea. And I think that was 2014 or 2013. And, um, you know, all of a sudden the wheat markets went crazy. And that's kind of when it connected, the, the dots connected in my mind of, um, you know, wow, this is crazy that something that happens on the other side of the world has an effect on, on, you know, what producers here in the U.S. are getting paid. And so as I kind of went throughout my career, I, I kind of got into some other markets uh, after the grain markets. And, um, you know, that was something with coffee. It's such an international market. And it still certainly is, is treated like a commodity in, in a lot of senses. You know, there is a futures market for coffee. Um, and it is a massive, massive commodity. I mean, beyond oil and water, it's one of the most consumed crops in the world. And, um, and so anyways, uh, you know, starting the company, I definitely still had that kind of itch as a trader, uh, to, to really utilize my skills and the things that I'd learned. And, uh, so, you know, I, I, every single day am still, I wouldn't say I'm actively trading, um, but I am definitely in the markets and I'm definitely paying attention to particularly the freight markets, um, as well as foreign exchange is, is obviously really important. And that's something that, that fluctuates for me daily. Um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I guess you could say we're technically, uh, a, a commodity trader in a sense, but definitely not to the level of a, of a Cargill or an ADM or something like that. So when you, when I looked at your website, it's going to be a two-part question. I want to know how many different types of coffees or how many different sources of coffees you have. And then what are some of the challenges that you face getting that product into the United States for resale? Yeah, so in in terms of um, our sources, uh, so like I said, we're, we're focused primarily or pretty much all on Latin American coffees. Um, so we, uh, w- within that group, um, you know, the countries that grow coffee in Latin America are going to be, uh, Mexico, your Central American com- uh, countries like Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama, Costa Rica, as well as Colombia, a little bit in Ecuador. And then Brazil is the, the world's largest, um, coffee grower. So, um, so we, we currently source from almost all of those with the exception of Brazil. Um, Brazil, the reason, not, nothing against Brazilian coffee, but they are producing more of a commercial grade coffee. Um, they, just like in everything, they, they have, uh, everything is mechanized and, and it just, the, the quality, they, they produce quantity, not quality, right? So, uh, it's, it's not quite what we're looking for. Um, that being said, you know, our, our main focus with a kind of subcategory of all of those countries is going to be El Salvador, where our own farm is, uh, Colombia, where we have a, a mill, uh, and then we also have a buying team in Mexico. So th- those are our three primary countries, and then we also kind of branch out from time to time. Um, as far as, as challenges getting into the U.S., you know, bringing coffee in is not the the hardest thing in the world in terms of uh customs and things like that phytosanitary requirements are pretty pretty relaxed with coffee because most of that is taken care of at the farm level or at the mill level in the origin country um 
you know, if, if a bag of coffee arrives and, and, and there is, you know, obvious insect damage or something, then we have to go through phytosanitary quarantine and things like that. But, but that's few and far between. I would say the biggest challenge that we face is sort of the, the, the stereotype of where a lot of these coffees are coming from. And that is drug trafficking. Um, you know, particularly containers coming from Colombia. Um, they are checked. You bet every single container is checked uh, for drugs. And a lot of times what that entails is a really long delays um, as customs and border patrol pulls our, our container aside, but also um, they, <laughs> they basically impale all of our bags uh, searching for, for, you know, drugs. And so a lot of times we'll get these mangled, mangled bags and there's a, quite a bit of product loss that comes with that. So it's, it's kind of something that we have to just factor in um, damaged bags due to, um, you know, uh, border patrol looking for drugs. Um, but, it, and then obviously right now with the, with the international freight markets, it is really, really difficult. Um, it, it's difficult for everybody, but particularly for commodity shippers, because you have companies like, uh, this is just an example, but you have companies like Apple, uh, let's say they have a container full of iPhones, you know, their margin is so big, they can pay a bonus to, or a, a premium to uh, unload their, their their cargo before before we we uh, can get ours unloaded. We we just can't afford um, to to pay those premiums. So mm-hmm. definitely, the logistics is a is a huge challenge right now. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm sure that's a a lot of other people that are in maybe these niche market type of industries are feeling that squeeze as well. But before we let you go, Charlie. Tell us a little bit more about how folks can find your coffee if they are interested in buying some from you guys. Yeah, so um, we sell online on our website, cosechadelsur.com. Um, I, I think our Instagram is a great uh, resource. Both, uh, you know, we show a lot of, of um, things from the origin. And so if people are interested at all in, in kind of learning a little bit about uh, coffee production and, and kind of the supply chain. We we try to be extremely transparent and show that. So I would say Instagram, Facebook are are two really good resources um, for for people to to check out. Um, but but definitely uh, they can order online and we ship all around the U.S. And uh, and yeah, that would be great. Right, we. We love, uh, we, we're constantly rolling out new coffees. And so we love when people take an interest and, and kind of want to try different coffees and want to try to, to gain a, a preference. I like to say it's like exploring, it sounds a little cheesy, but it's like exploring the world of coffee and letting kind of your taste take you, uh, or your, your taste preferences take you, um, wherever they take you. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I'm sure we've got some coffee drinkers that listen to the podcast. So hopefully folks will be sure to head over to your website and check that out. But Charlie, thanks again for joining us today. Certainly appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Glad to be here. Well, that, Delaney, for someone who enjoys coffee was a fun conversation. I don't know if you enjoyed it as much as I did. Yeah, I wish. I love the smell of coffee. I just have never been a big coffee drinker, unfortunately. 
certainly interesting to find out. I was kind of hoping that we would learn that he grew coffee in like Iowa because then I would start to try and grow my own coffee in the garden. Uh, but it doesn't sound like that's the case. No, unfortunately not. But you could try it. That could be interesting, at least nonetheless. You might get some media coverage of this person trying to grow coffee in Iowa, which obviously won't work well for lots of reasons. Because I think he said warm and drier temperates, if I remember correctly. Which yes. I could throw some grow lights in the basement, and my wife already forgets to water the in-house plants. So we may, might be able to get some of this done indoors. Okay, well, there you go. You could just have a little indoor <laughs> greenhouse to grow your own coffee. <laughs> That's great. I think they're tired of listening to us, so why don't you say we let the people go? Let's let them go. Thank <laughs> you.